Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. We are back aboard for another edition here of the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast off of the second full weekend of college football, the first full weekend of the NFL regular season. That, a lot more, and a special guest upcoming who has got a a very intriguing, interesting documentary that is out right now on professional lacrosse, of all things. We're ready to talk about all of these different things and how they relate to the media, the ratings, etc., in the world of sports on the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. I am the somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves, fresh back from Dallas. Texas is still standing after the Cowboys lost, but for how much longer, I don't know. With Dak Prescott hurt, who knows how that will be. He is the owner, the operator, the man you read. We love to hear from Dr. John Lewis, a.k.a. Paulson, uh, from the site SportsMediaWatch.com. Always good to be back with you. How are things? Oh, you know, I'm just getting by, doing the best uh, doing the best one can, right? It's the busy part of the season again after a very long period of uh, – a very boring summer. So good to have football back. Yes. Good to have lots of football back. And so again, we say to you, however you found us as the audience via social media link through John's site, sportsmediawatch.com. Make sure you're following or subscribing on this feed, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, you can find us under sports media watch against George Offman's podcast is also on this feed. Tell me a story. I don't know. Last week he talked with Greg Gumbel of CBS, Dan Pompey, who is a, phenomenal stalwart Chicago uh, sports writing legend uh, who's been covering the NFL, the Bears, and the Chicago market for the better part of 40-plus years. He's the guest this week. George, always great storytelling on those podcasts with sports media members, usually a Chicago angle. It's tell me a story I don't know. You get that early in the week. And then uh, our guys Mike Gill and Phil DeMott Mullen with the Announcer Schedules podcast later in the week. We love their insight, everything having to do with announcers in the booth. Catch it on Announcer Schedules. And my point is, again, that's all on this feed, the Sports Media yep. Watch feed, if you're following and subscribing. And, and, John, just a quick comment from you. We love the diversity. We love the content. We love yeah. the guests. And, by the way, we sometimes have bonuses, don't we, John? Because if you were following we sure or subscribing on the feed, you got Scott Hansen of the NFL Red Zone later in the week last week on a separate interview besides the podcast. They didn't have to have any other – uh, prompt they knew if they're subscribing we had a new episode with scott hansen and you're still impressed even though this is an audio podcast they can't see us you're still impressed with hansen's home setup with all the tvs on the wall that he showed us it was crazy yeah i was uh, thinking about trying to get something like that myself uh, honestly you know uh, i mean why not I, I actually did do a little bit of that because uh, I've been using Fubo TV and they've got the multi view. And mm-hmm. so I was able to watch uh, all the college football games that I wanted to watch and Seinfeld at the same time. So it worked out quite well. Hanson, again, if you weren't with us, has like a 75 inch screen in the middle and then other 50 inch screens around it. I did joke with him. He could probably land a plane at LAX or maybe mm-hmm. maybe launch a rocket like NASA if he needed to. Uh, with that setup at the house, he doesn't get enough of nine or 10 screens on his Sunday uh, work duties for like seven or eight hours of watching all the NFL. 
I mean, goodness gracious, it was a lot to watch from this weekend. So let's get right into it. Let's start first with the college. And obviously the big news was the big noon kickoff game, as we figured, with Alabama as the ultimate love-hate team, perennial national championship contender going into Texas uh, to play the Longhorns, the mighty Texas Longhorns. And this, uh, John Lewis, scored well in the ratings, as we would have thought, with a very close, narrow game for Alabama. Pick it up on that. Over 10 million viewers, which, uh, I mean, obviously for a noon game is pretty good, uh, an understatement. Uh, and uh, the most watched game of the season out to Notre Dame, Ohio State. I mean, that's that's not a big, that's not a small deal. Notre Dame, Ohio State is as good a matchup as you can have. And it aired in prime time. And Fox did better with Alabama, Texas. Uh, and, you know, the Notre Dame, Ohio State game was close. It was not a blowout. So I think if you're Fox, you got to feel pretty good about that. And, uh, you know, if you're ESPN, you got to feel good about it, too, because Alabama, Texas is going to be an SEC matchup coming up in a few uh, years. And ESPN will have all of the SEC games at that point. So uh, ESPN, you know, uh, in this scenario, uh, you feel a little bit maybe chagrined that Fox gets this uh, great this great number, but you also feel, hey, we're going to get this matchup, if not every year, and certainly with a decent amount of frequency coming up soon. Well, and they had some other matchups. They had UC, USC and Stanford in prime time with Reese Davis uh, filling in yeah. for Chris Fowler because Chris Fowler was working the U.S. Open tennis finals, ladies and men's finals on Saturday and Sunday. But that was a, a dog game. I mean, Lincoln Riley's USC Trojans just steamrolled Stanford in the first half and made it a blowout. So that didn't help yeah. as the national game. The Florida-Kentucky game was a better game on ESPN that you had when you were going back and forth. I was in the hotel and then at a uh, – at a sports restaurant real quick in, in uh, Dallas Saturday night. And the ga- the Gator game was much more compelling with Kentucky eventually pulling the upset in Gainesville than the real lack of drama for the ABC main game the other yeah. night as well. Just didn't have a close game, and that hurts. Uh, I mean, the reality of the matter is, you know, the Pac-12 isn't really that entertaining, right? And so, uh, you know, I was surprised they went with the Pac-12 game in week two. That almost seemed like they were kind of surrendering. Pac-12 in week two, you know, it's a little bit early for that. So uh, to me, uh, you know, I'm not surprised by the way the ratings worked out. And uh, I think ultimately, you know, I mean, when it comes down to it, we know the SEC is bigger than the Pac-12, whether it's on ESPN uh, for the SEC and the Pac-12 is on ABC or not. The broadcast cable distinction does not matter all that much when you're talking about, you know, uh, the, the conference of record and a conference that may not even be around in a couple of years. Very true. The PAC 12 tenuous right now, that's for sure uh, for the college football. Okay. So we move on to the NFL and we know the Thursday opener with the Buffalo bills yeah. wiping out the Rams had already happened before the weekend. John, my goodness, uh, Roger Goodell could not have diagrammed this. If you, if you gave him the platform to write the script, how many crazy yeah. finishes for the early games on Sunday in the NFL uh, from all over the place, whether it was Washington, D.C., Cincinnati, Atlanta, uh, one great finish after Houston, Texas, one crazy finish overtime here, last-second field goal there. Uh, Carolina and Cleveland traded last-second field goals, uh, ruining the debut of Baker Mayfield in in, in Carolina. Um, Burrow and the the Bengals tried every which way to lose that game, yet had Mm. chances to win it. They get an extra point blocked that forces overtime. Both teams, John, miss a field goal in overtime, and a lot of the country was seeing Cincinnati 
and Pittsburgh. We were seeing it in Dallas where I was as the national game. That game bled on with the overtime a good 45 minutes past its normal window. So such drama early, not as much late. What about the reflection uh, in the ratings, if you will? Well, the ratings were very strong for that, uh, for the night game, for the Cowboys and and, and Buccaneers. And uh, because you have the dueling doubleheaders now in week one, the afternoon games individually did not really draw that well. CBS did do its best number for the regional window. So that's either the first game of a doubleheader or the singleheader. They did their best number for a regional window in week one since 1998, right? Wow. So that's that's, you know, but so translate for me, that means Cincinnati, Pittsburgh went to a lot of the country, but they also had Houston and Indianapolis, for example, uh, in the split. And I'm going to leave something out here. But Jets, Baltimore was in the split for the New York market in particular. And you're saying that that split window, that early window did well going all the way back to what, the 1990s as a reference point? 1998. Wow. 1998. Jordan had just uh, retired from the NBA, and I'm trying Seinfeld to Seinfeld ended. Seinfeld's over. Yeah, there's a lot of things that were going on in 98 uh, yeah. with that. But that's, uh, that's a testament to close games, though, as well. And that kind of segues that the CBS game with Jim Nance, Tony Romo, Tracy Wolfson was a Kansas City whitewash in Arizona. That was the national uh, late game. Uh, and then the Fox late game had Minnesota and Green Bay. That surprisingly, Minnesota, I thought they would win, but Minnesota... Uh, surprisingly dominated that game against Aaron Rodgers and the Packers at home. It was not a close game, is my point, as the main national game on Fox. So obviously they suffered a little bit ratings-wise from that. Yeah, yeah, the ratings declined for that one. Uh, Both Fox windows were up. CBS was up in the early window, but that uh, Chiefs Cardinals was down. Um, You know, so obviously the game wasn't very good. Uh, Fox probably benefited a little bit from that. This is the second straight year they've done the dueling doubleheaders. Before then, Fox had the late window in week one every year or almost every year. This arrangement has not benefited Fox at all, because if you go back two years, they had a 13 rating for the late window uh, two years ago, even though it was a COVID year. They had a 13 rating. Uh, Even this year, what was it, nine you know, an eight point something last year because you're divvying up that late window audience. So uh, Fox would much prefer the old format. I'm pretty sure Sports Business Journal reported that Fox had asked the NFL to move away from this new format with the dueling doubleheaders, understandably, because it's not working for them. It's, it's you know, it's not a big deal. I mean, you know, they, they certainly are benefiting more than anything from everything the NFL does. But, uh, you know, uh, they could certainly stand to go back to the old format just to get those uh, individually strong numbers. It does work out pretty well for CBS, though. Yes, it does. And, of course, it's a Super Bowl year this year for Fox. Uh, So that's another reason why they want the stronger audience uh, right out of the gate. Uh, And then we segue into the Sunday night game again. I was working Buccaneers radio in Dallas. Uh, John, again, I conveyed to the audience it was some scene, 93,000 fans that were there uh, at uh, AT AT&T Stadium. They allowed with the standing room only. I thought mm-hmm. this was interesting. This is like old school concerts used to be before they had all the dangerous trouble and problems where they had standing room only or festival seating, general admission right. seating. They opened those plazas roughly three hours before the game and let people mm-hmm. rush right up to the standing room area mm-hmm. where they they ran by the hundreds up to the front of those plazas and they're seven to 10 deep standing three hours before the game at like 5, 15 Eastern time, 4, 15 local time to start the standing room only. 
for that game. Tom Brady's final time in AT&T Stadium, save for the fact that they might play the Cowboys in a playoff game uh, in Dallas if something were to happen. Of course, now we know Dak Prescott is hurt from the game. Dallas's season may be down the tubes already after just one week. And the game was a one-sided game. So even though the rating was good and the audience was good, it's not as good probably as it could have been, right? If it had been a more exciting second half, right, John? Yeah, well, you know, you're talking 19 to three. So it's not just lopsided, not a lot of offense. Uh, says a lot about the interest in Brady, interest in the Cowboys, that the numbers were as good as they were. Uh, I did want to say about that game, just the broadcast, you know, I've said before, and I still maintain that Mike Carrico is not at the same level as Al Michaels. That's not an insult. Al is probably the greatest ever to do it. But I was really struck by just how comfortably Tariko felt like he was the lead because he's done games before uh, for NBC, you know, filling in for Al here or there. And it always sounded like you were getting the substitute teacher, even as good as Mike is. Well, in, in that game, uh, he sounded like the lead. Uh, he sounded like he belonged there. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it felt right. Um, I still think that Tariko, Collinsworth, and Stark is not as good a team as Michaels, Collinsworth, and Defoya, but I do think it's a good team. Uh, and, uh, you know, Tariko felt like he belonged there. Uh, that's for sure. And, and one interesting, just uh, personal professional note. So I'm down there working our radio broadcast at field level with uh, Gene Deckerhoff, our Hall of Fame legend on the call of Buccaneer Games, our, our veteran uh, radio analyst and former tight end Dave Moore, who does a fantastic job as well. So right away, John, I'm getting messages from people saying, what's going on with Chris Collinsworth? What's up with his voice? People, I'm working my own broadcast. I'm not able to hear Chris Collinsworth. I wasn't even around those guys. Uh, I know he explained apparently later in the game that he was fatigued from having worked in Los Angeles, air travel, whatever. Maybe he had some kind of cold sinus infection or whatever coming on. It was gruff. I'm just sharing you personal professional story. I got enough things to worry about down there on the sideline trying to keep track of my job. I can't keep track of how Chris Collinsworth sounds. Exactly. You know, it was interesting. It reminded me of the Jeff Van Gundy game, game seven uh, Celtics and heat and Van Gundy sounded so sick and it turned out he had COVID. But, you know, uh, it, I do think it's crummy to speculate about people's health generally. Uh, you know, there was a lot of speculation about Terry Bradshaw's health. Right. Terry did not look, you know, healthy, uh, to be honest, on the air. Uh, and, I, you know, it, it does. I'm not going to speak to anything there, but there mm -hmm. were people concerned about that. And uh, obviously with Collinsworth, the COVID concerns, you know, these are all real people and uh, you don't age backwards. You only age forwards in life. Uh, so, you know, the reality is you get a little bit older. Maybe your voice doesn't recover the same way that it used to. I mean, if you've watched The Simpsons, you know, Julie Kavner's voice, right? Mart Simpson, a uh, very gravelly voice. And as time goes on, it gets more and more gravelly because she's straining it every year. And, yes. you know, this is just kind of the way things go. Remember Lucille Ball? Do you know what Lucille Ball sounded like by yes. the end of her yes. life? You know, this is just stuff that happens. So uh, hopefully Chris will be back to his uh, normal self coming up uh, this week. Let's hope so. Let's hope that that is the case. And again, the the final uh, tally for the Sunday night number, uh, and I know I know they included they included all the streaming and Peacock, et cetera, and it, it did very well, I guess, on the streaming end. Relatively yeah. speaking, lower end. Yeah. Elaborate a little more, John, on that, if you would. 
Well, you know, the streaming is starting to pick up. Uh, it's still a small part of the audience. But, you know, back in the day, a couple of years ago, NBC streaming audience was usually in the six figures. Now it's in the seven figures. That's the peacock effect. The game did very well on linear TV, over 23 million viewers. You add in the streaming, it's 25 million. So it makes a difference. And I think if you're NBC, you can be very pleased with that number. Uh, certainly, uh, Sunday Night Football continues to be the NFL program of well, I mean, 425 is the NFL program of record, but Sunday Night Football certainly is the primetime broadcast of record, and uh, uh, there's no uh, no slippage evidence, certainly. I will share this with the audience. We pulled in for the game about four hours before game time on the, on the team buses, and the big uh, NBC television trucks have yeah. it plastered right on the side of the TV trucks. America's number one primetime show. Yep. What I, I think it even said like 14 years running or something wow. like that. It's plastered on the on the trucks, on the TV trucks that mm -hmm. they're promoting it uh, that way for Sunday night football. So I just thought I would yep. share that as well. Okay, so that leads us to the Monday night debut. Uh, not only of Russell Wilson on the field in Seattle against his old team with the Denver Broncos, but the broadcast crew of Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. Uh, again, bizarro world. It, it was yeah. definitely odd to see them on ESPN after 21 years on Fox. Uh, so now they are together on ESPN with Monday Night Football. John, what were your thoughts? And that that was a crazy finish and a, a dramatic finish where Seattle hung on for the win. But what were your thoughts on Monday Night Football as we come off of that? Well, it's a super team they've got. Uh, Buck Aikman and Salters, it's a super team. So realistically, the best NFL broadcast team of the modern era, in my view. So I've been watching the NFL not as long as I've been watching the NBA. So my point of reference really goes back to Al and John. That's really you know where, where my mm -hmm. NFL viewership begins. And uh, in that period of time, about 20 years, so I'm not going back to Pat and John, I would say Michaels, Collinsworth, and Tafoya is the best team I've heard. Uh, Buck Aikman and Salters, I think will be at least equivalent to that. Uh, Salters is very underrated. First of all, she has a hard news background. Uh, she has been competent in everything she's done. Uh, and uh, in my view, the only sideline reporter in her class uh, would be Michelle Tafoya or Susie Culber. Uh, now, you know, Tracy Wilson's very good. Uh, but, you know, if I'm, if I'm setting a top three, it's Salters, Tafoya, and uh, uh, Susie Culber, who doesn't do that anymore. But, uh, you know, Susie, by the way, uh, the ultimate pro, I still can't believe how well she handled that Joe Namath situation that right. would have been, you know. But, uh, you look, you know, it's a great team that they've got. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it, it, I, I almost question what ESPN did to deserve such good fortune to have that as their Monday Night Football team uh, after doing such a kind of poor job uh, with the, 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 the program before. So it's everything they could ever want. And Buck and Aikman, they are just pros. They know exactly what they're doing. Uh, they sounded exactly right. You know, I said a lot of things in defense of Levy, Riddick and Greasy last year. And I stand by those things because I think it's kind of crummy to give people a job and then not stand by them. But the level of increase here in terms of quality is off the charts. It's like when you trade, Ingram and Ball and Kuzma for Anthony Davis. And I know Anthony Davis can't stay on the court, right? But they won a title because of that trade. That's the equivalent of what this is. Uh, and I was looking you know, for like another metaphor, maybe even outside of sports. Like when you're trading, I, I don't know, the hamburger and fries for the filet mignon with the baked potato yeah. and the butter and the chives or something. I just yeah. thought I would share that. 
Not because well, I'm hungry, but you know, the trade-off thing that you, right. you made a basketball reference. That's fine. Continue on. Yeah. Why not? Why not with basketball? I mean, you know, and a lot of people don't like Joe Buck. I, th- I saw this video yesterday, uh, Jimmy Trina. You know mm-hmm. what's interesting? I've been reading his work for so many years that I'm not 100% sure if it's Trina or Trania, because in my mind, I see a second eye, but I know it's Trina. And I'm not 100% sure I'm pronouncing it right, it's but he's Trina. very, yes. okay, it's Trina. And he does great work. Sports Illustrated. Yeah, Sports does Illustrated. Does what we do with sports media, right. yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, and that's totally on me. I just have a weird thing where with names. I've had students... Uh, I remember the COVID year, we got to the very end and uh, March 11th, the you know, D-Day, and I still didn't know one of my students' names. And he was a good student too. So that's totally <laughs> okay. on me. But Go anyway, Go ahead. right. So he shared this video um, where, uh, you know, uh, Bill Maher was talking to Aaron Rodgers mm-hmm. and Bill Maher couldn't believe that people hated Joe Buck. He was aghast. He couldn't believe it. You know, and Bill Maher, works in politics for a living. All he knows is irrational hatred and, you know, uh, and vindictive nastiness. And he was shocked that people hated Joe Buck because, well, how could people hate Joe Buck? What does he even do? You know, look, the reality is that Joe's a lot like LeBron James, which is a heck of a compliment to Joe. But it's true. Joe Buck is the LeBron James of broadcasting because just like LeBron, Joe Buck is probably the best of his generation. He's one of the best ever. And people are still judging him for mistakes he made more than a decade ago. So LeBron is still paying the reputational price for his play against the Celtics in 10 and the Mavericks in 11. And Joe Buck is still paying the price for that's a disgusting act by Randy Moss. He's paying the price for his anemic call of the helmet catch. He's paying the price for every single time. There was a great moment in the early 2000s and he was doing his Pat Summerall impression. He's still paying the price reputationally for all of that stuff when he has been Excellent, pretty much con- consistently ever since that thing where his voice was lost. He's mm-hmm. been consistently excellent for 11 years. And people still want to judge him for the fact that he was underwhelming for, admittedly, a solid, you know. But can I tell you years. something? I mean, people judge Jim Nance. They they judge Al Michaels. They, ju- they judge all the different announcers of all the different sports. Yeah, but sports. they hate Joe Buck. Well, they, but they, I mean, they... there's... There's plenty that hate some of the others and how they call the games and make fun of Joe of Jim Nance's uh, hello friends whenever he's yeah. around, whatever. There's a segment that's going to dislike whoever the announcers are for a myriad of reasons. Now, maybe it's more like yeah. you're saying for Joe Buck in his case with some of the specifics. But again, he's done the biggest games on Fox for football and baseball with the World Series for 25 plus years yeah. on the biggest stage where you're constantly seeing uh, all of that. And I can tell you, he's very relatable, very down to earth. He is newly remarried in the last few years. Yeah. Twins, by the way, and younger kids. He's grounded in in that. He and Aikman get along and play off each other so well with the yeah. insight and the analysis. So do you have a little bit of uh, critique of how they were together in the ESPN booth with a close game to work with? Seattle against uh, Russell Wilson coming back to play his old team with the Denver Broncos. Any thoughts on how they sounded doing the game real quick? I mean, the thought that I have is, you know how many years it's been since I watched Monday Night Football and it seemed like an actual NFL broadcast and not like basically what ESPN has been doing with all due respect to everyone there has been Mike Patrick and Paul McGuire and Joe Theismann on Sunday nights, but on Monday nights. Right. Which is to say kind of that other team for the other game. That's not really that great. And you're only really watching if you're super into football. 
Now they're doing a real NFL broadcast. Now Monday Night Football is back to the level it was when Al and John were there and it was an event. And when, you know, you would have the 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 the, uh, the Hank Williams theme and he's singing about Al and John in the theme. And it just mm-hmm. sounds like it's this big deal that you're there. Like that's where Monday Night Football is just by having Joe and Troy there. They have elevated that program. When, it, when Monday Night Football went to ESPN, it was diminished immediately because ESPN, I don't care, you know, worldwide leader, blah, blah, blah. It's cable. So the moment Monday Night Football went to ESPN, it was immediately diminished and has been diminished ever since. And Buck and Aikman immediately, simply by their presence, restore it, if not all the way back to where it was when ABC had the rights most of the way there. Yep. Command and call of the game was good. Interesting. Troy Aikman was somewhat critical, not as much critical at the end where the Broncos let time off the clock and then elected a 64 yard field goal attempt instead of letting Russell Wilson try to run a play on fourth and five to keep the drive alive. It was interesting that the Manning cast, we've not talked about the Manning cast at this point in our sportsmediawatch.com podcast. The Manning cast was on with uh, Peyton and Eli. Full disclosure, I didn't watch very much of it, but I do know the clip is out there on the internet of Peyton negatively reacting with Shannon Sharp as the guest. Shannon Sharp's a former Super Bowl winning tight end in Denver. Peyton Manning, obviously a Super Bowl winning quarterback in two places in Indianapolis and in Denver. Peyton Manning was about as critical as you're going to hear him be on the clock management, on the decision to kick the field goal. Shannon Sharp was more over the top. He was more undisputed with Skip over the top about it. Uh, But that, that was fascinating. They were more critical on that broadcast. John, any thought there before we move on? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I would say this is the first time Shannon Sharp has been in front of an audience on TV that was actually higher than 15 people in a long time, you know, being out there on Undisputed. But look, you know, the reality of the matter is that was horrible coaching. Anyone would have been critical of it. Uh, It was deserving of of, of that uh, 64 yard field goal. I mean, you don't need to even know anything about football to know that if you have a great quarterback. Five yards is better than six. By, by the way, how about know your own kicker? Brandon McManus yeah. has tried four previous field goals before last night of above 60 yards and missed them all. Yeah. How about know your kicker a little bit too in that situation? So it was a mess. They said it was a mess. And John's taken two handed swings at the undisputed show and rightfully so with uh, Skip Bayless as, uh, as part of that. I love it. I love yeah. it on uh, on all of those fronts. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Speaking of love it or leave it, we're going we're gonna to do a little more love it or leave it in a little bit. What do you say we get to a special guest? Do you want to do that right about now, yeah, John? Absolutely. How do you feel about that? We do have a documentary uh, that is out. It is debuting this week involving professional lacrosse. You say professional lacrosse? Let's find out some more about that right now. So uh, today we're very happy to be joined by Michael Doniger the director of the new ESPN Films documentary, Fate of a Sport, which is about the Premier Lacrosse League and its formation. Uh, the PLL uh, is heading into its championship game on ABC on Sunday. So uh, this documentary is premiering on ESPN three nights earlier. And uh, Michael, we're happy to have you. And uh, I guess I'll just kind of start out by uh, asking you to give me kind of a, a brief synopsis here of what this documentary is about and uh, what the general sports fan who does not follow lacrosse can find in it of interest to them. Sure. Well, first of all, John, thank you for, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so this, this documentary fate of a sport is about Paul Rabel uh, teaming up with his brother, Mike Rabel. Now Paul is uh, widely regarded as the best lacrosse player in the world over the last 15 years, certainly the biggest name in the sport over the last 15 years. And uh, essentially he wasn't, he wasn't very uh, happy with how the MLL uh, major league lacrosse, his, his former employer um, were, was, was running things uh, quite frankly. And, and um, they didn't feel like um, they didn't feel like professional athletes. And uh, there was a standard that they, uh, that the players felt that um, that just wasn't as as high as as Paul uh, and and all those other players wanted wanted it to be, and so Paul went out and and teamed up with his brother Mike, who's not related to the sport of lacrosse other than playing in high school. He actually played in college, but he's uh, he's an entrepreneur. He spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, so together they they combined forces and. And uh, they started this league, uh, the Premier Lacrosse League, uh, at first to challenge the MLL. And then after a couple of years, they actually absorbed the MLL. Um, and now they are the, uh, the uh, sole league standing for, uh, for professional lacrosse and, and outdoor play. And, um, and essentially, this story is about, um, you know, it's about sacrifice and it's about fighting for what you believe in. And, and um, you know, essentially, it's about chasing a dream and, and uh you know, through the course of the movie, particularly in the first act, we see Paul and Mike trying to raise money from investors. And, and, uh, you know, we have, we have, uh, Joe Sai, uh, he's a big investor in the, in the PLL and we have, uh, interviews with him and, and Joe of course is the owner of the uh, Brooklyn Nets. And, uh, we have interview, uh, meetings with, uh, Paul and Mike are, are pitching Gary V, uh, on their concept. Um, you know, and, and, and so we kind of have a very, 
um, unique behind the scenes look into what it's like to not just build a professional sports league, but go out and, and, and raise money for it at the early ground stages. And um, I, I haven't seen anything like that uh, in anything in, in professional sports and just kind of got like a shark tank meets free solo vibe to it. Uh, <laughs> minus the, you know, the, the stakes of death of falling off a mountain. Um, but everything else is kind of uh, is, is uh, appropriate. Very interesting stuff. So this is basically, if not a player run league, this is, well, go ahead. Yes, no, that's, that's, that's correct. I mean, um, they, one of their, um, one of their sayings is we, the players, and um, they, uh, they, they provided their players with uh, health benefits, which believe it or not, uh, the old league did not provide their players with health benefits. They raised their salaries, uh, I think four, by, by four X um, they uh, provide stock options uh, for the players. So they wanted to be as inclusive as possible. And, and um, you know, it, it's not like they just started a professional league. They had to recruit 150 players from the uh, the old league. And so, and we of course also have that on camera too, Paul pitching all these guys and, and, you know, convince, trying to convince them that this is, this is what we're going to fulfill the dreams that you have of being a professional athlete. And, and um, I mean, ultimately it's, these guys were kind of, it was treated largely as a beer league, the old league. It was, you know, a, a weekend warriors league. And, and um, you know, these guys wanted more and, and the sport has been growing. The sport has been growing um, so vast uh, at, at, at the youth level, but it was hitting. Um, it was. It, it was just plateauing at the at the professional level. So Paul really wanted to break through that ceiling. I'll uh, I'll let TJ get in here in a second, but I was just curious: Are you familiar at all with the Players League of eighteen ninety in baseball? Um, I, ha- I not not to the uh, um, effect that I can say I'm 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 very up to date with it. I'm 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 familiar, but not not not. Michael, so much he stuff. didn't pre-approve that question with me either. I'm not familiar <laughs> either. And John's about to educate us. So go ahead. Yeah. John John would like for the record to know, uh everybody to know that Sports Media Watch was not covering the players league of 1890. He's not that old. Go ahead, John. No, no. Uh but you know this is a uh, this is the league that formed from uh, John Montgomery Ward and the Brotherhood, the early baseball union. They didn't like what the uh you know the owners were doing uh in terms of things like the reserve clause that didn't go away for 80 years and into the 70s was still there. Uh, and they broke off and formed their own new league, recruited a lot of the best players in baseball at the time. They were beating the National League, which was the league that they broke away from in attendance, but they couldn't survive past the first year because they're investors, right? It was a player run league, but they had all these investors. The investors weren't making money and they wanted out after one year. And so even though they were they had the best players, they were beating the NL, they couldn't survive. Now, obviously, the PLL has absorbed uh, uh, Major League Lacrosse, so there's Mm -hmm. not that competition. But is that kind of a vulnerability for a player run league to be dependent on investors like Josai? Is that kind of repeating history or is it on stronger ground now? Well, I don't mean to say it's a player run league in the sense that, uh, you know, the players are the ones literally running the league. It's it, the, it, it was formed by uh, a former player who was actually still playing at the time in, in Paul. Uh, he's since retired. 
Um, but that's more of a saying than it is a, a literal practice. You know, the, the league has executives and they have um, uh, advisors and board members that they answer to. So, um, um, but, but yeah, so, so it's uh, um, they, again, it's, 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 we, the players in the sense that they are keeping the players best interests at hand with, with, um, all of their decision-making, which was not something that the old league, uh, or at least the players felt the old league, uh, was doing. So, um, I can't say it's, again, it's, it's an apples to apples comparison to, to the league you're referencing. Again, you're hearing the voice of Michael Doniger. Michael is the director and producer of a film that is out this week on ESPN and on ABC. Fate of Sport is the name of it. It is, uh, it is the trials. It is the trajectory. It is everything involved with a professional lacrosse league. And fascinating here, you're a lacrosse player. And Paul Rabel and you were teammates at Johns Hopkins. Uh, so I'm, obviously this was a passion of yours the sport at one point so kind of pick that up that you go back as far with Paul as being players uh, teammates with him on a team pick up on that point if you would yeah, sure sure uh, uh, lacrosse was near and dear to my heart still is uh, but growing up it was it was it was everything uh, it's, it, it's how I uh, was able to get into a great school like Johns Hopkins and um, and there that's where I that's where I met Paul Rabel and we uh, we were in the same class and we were freshmen now uh, freshmen together and, and played together for those four years. We're co-captains our, our senior year and uh, won a couple of national championships together. Paul was uh, was <laughs> had just just a couple more uh, personal accolades than I did. Uh, in fact, a hundred percent more. Um, but uh, but um, after college, I, I moved out to to Los Angeles to 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 try and become a filmmaker. And then um, that's what I've been doing for the last fifteen years and. And uh, when Paul announced the league and they moved their operations out to Los Angeles, um, it just kind of made sense for us to to team up and 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 tell their story. And um, you know, I'm I'm grateful to Paul and Mike for for saying yes and allowing me all of that access um, because without without that, uh, this this film is you know does not get made and. And uh, again, like their, their vulnerability is just so important in this. We didn't want this to be, we didn't want this to be a, uh, a documentary where we only show the good. Like there's a, it's just, this is a raw look. I mean, Paul gets into his personal life, um, you know, it, it failures uh, both personally and professionally. And, and uh, I think that's why the film uh, seems to be resonating uh, with the people that, that at least I've heard from. Can you contrast this league, this model, right? We hear a lot about player empowerment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, can you contrast this model that the PLL has to something like you see in the NBA, where the players seem to have a lot of power, but ultimately the owners are the ones who are making, you know, I mean, we talk about player salaries. The owner franchise values have skyrocketed far more than player salaries have. So do you feel like the real player empowerment is what the PLL has going on or is it the NBA where the players are obviously huge celebrities, tremendous amounts of money? Is that still at, at a higher level of empowerment in your view? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's no question. There's no comparison between what what the uh, NBA star uh, or even the last player on, on an NBA uh, roster is is uh, at least making monetarily. And and, and that is that, that can, you know, it's it's that's way more than the highest player in the PLL uh, as of right now. And and so, you know, we can't compare it in, 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 in that regard. Um, 
but the the formation of the two leagues are are, are uh, quite different. Um, the each team in the NBA obviously is owned by individual owners, and for the PLL, it's a single entity league, so they don't have owners per team, and um, that that model may evolve. Uh, down the road, I can't speak to that as as I'm not in those uh, daily conversations. But in terms of the formation of the PLL, they wanted to bring everyone together in a single entity league, have these eight teams, uh, originally six, now it's eight, and then do a tour based model, um, uh, and then kind of get their feet underneath them, and and then hopefully in a couple of years expand out the cities, and then when they do have those cities, um, you know potentially bring on individual owners. Uh, that's all. All that's that stuff is. Uh, is, is being discussed right now. Um, you know, in terms of player empowerment, uh, I, w- I can't speak specifically to uh, which player, um, you know, which league uh, offers more uh, empowerment, um, but I'd be hard pressed to say that the PLL guys um, are, not, <laughs> are, are not envious of the salaries and the celebrity that, uh, that uh, affords NBA players. So um, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth and say that uh, everything is, you know, hunky dory PLL and they're, they're, you know, uh, they're at the top of where they want to go. I mean, certainly the NBA is the blueprint for them and the NFL. Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I can't speak to the, to, to the uh, players versus ownership uh, again, because I'm not in those daily conversations, but certainly NBA, NFL, those are, those are leagues that um, are, are North stars for the PLL. Michael, real quick, again, not everybody may be a lacrosse fan, but they're going to have two opportunities as we release this podcast to see the film, uh, Fate of a Sport. Here's your opportunity. Promote why they are interested, not just for the lacrosse, but the human interest, the financial aspects, et cetera. Why do they need to be watching Fate of a Sport on ESPN later this week and then on ABC, obviously, on Sunday as well? I I mean... Yes, I'm I'm a I'm a lacrosse fan, and and uh, that's what brought myself and Paul together, and that's why it made sense for us to make this movie. But um, to me, it, uh, stories are all about your characters and um, their rootability. And for two brothers like Paul and Mike, and this is a brother story. This is about, uh, like I said uh, earlier, it's about it's about sacrifice. It's about chasing a dream, and I think those are universal themes. Um, and it's about fighting for what you believe in. And um, when you see the the odds that these two brothers are up against and how very few people gave them a shot and all the no's that they had to to take and the punches they had to take to, to get to where they are today, um, I think that's, you know, to me, that's something as uh, not just a sports fan or a lacrosse fan. I think that's that that's just a good story. So, um, again, I, it's if, if you want to see a story about two two brothers trying to uh, chase a dream, I'd say this is the movie for you. All right. I think that's a good way to, to finish out our conversation here. A very interesting story. Um, and just really quickly before we go, every year there's a lockout. Uh, in the NBA, baseball, wherever, <laughs> every single time they say, well, the players should form their own league or the players say it. I remember Amari Stoudemire said something like this in the 2011 lockout. There was this terribly racist article in like one of the Utah papers uh, calling him an idiot for, for the very concept. Now, if the NBA players, if things go badly in the next CBA, there's a lockout and they decide, you know what? We are enormous celebrities, right? People will watch us play. We matter more than the teams do. Right. Could you see this as a model that 
successful multimillionaire players will pursue? Or is it something that you need to have less to lose, right? Because obviously you're going to go from making big money to being part of a developing league. So do you think this is something that multimillionaire star athletes would be willing to do? Or do you think they won't have the stomach for it? I think money talks. So what we're seeing right now with live golf, um, that's, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of an appropriate comparison uh, of, you know, these guys are seeing uh, these golfers are, are seeing an opportunity to make more money and have more freedom. Uh, and so that's, that's why they're, they're taking this up and, and uh, they're leaving the old traditional models. Um, and, you know, so I, I don't think it's it's uh, crazy to say that um, something like this couldn't be scaled up to an NBA uh, size level of a uh, 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 competitor. Um, but I don't know who's going to who's going to do that. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's what's so unique about this story is it takes someone who's who's who is willing to take the heat and to uh, throw themselves into the fire to and and throw the reputation uh it's a hard proposition for for you know lebron james or one of these bigger basketball players to want to take on when life's pretty good you know exactly very interesting stuff hey thanks again for joining us and the documentary comes out thursday on espn and then sunday i believe preceding the pll championship game on abc john tj was it was a pleasure thanks for having me and we appreciate Michael's time being with us. Fate of a sport out on ESPN as we release uh, here. That will be out on Thursday. And then on Sunday, they will run it again, John, as we were saying in the interview, right before the Professional Lacrosse League Championship. Um, and I realize not everybody's going to gravitate to a niche sport like that, but I kind of like the story that uh, that's intertwined here in the risk um, that, that Paul took as the prominent player, let's go start a whole new league. So fascinating on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I mentioned the players league of 1890, it has happened before. It didn't last very long. That's why I see players league of 1890 and not the players league of the 1890s. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it's certainly uh, interesting, uh, especially when you talk about the future and, you know, collective bargaining. And the fact of the matter is, you know, I mean, the big three, if you had a big three, but it was like LeBron and whoever else from the NBA, I think it would do some pretty decent numbers. But the players would have to sacrifice quite a bit of money to get that off the ground. And they probably don't have the appetite for that. That's the other big component there on that. So we thank Michael Doniger for being with us. That leads us into the home stretch here, the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. We've got some good subjects to cover. Let's get into that right now. Love it or leave it. Item number one, U.S. Open tennis concluded this past weekend with the finals matches on Sunday, on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, again, John, it was hurt by the fact no American in either final match, even right. with the United States Open. But give me some thoughts on the ratings on that. Well, you know, uh, the two the two uh, singles finals were about as well as you could expect. I mean, realistically, we're talking about uh, you got to be a tennis fan to really even know who these players are. So we attacked the number one player in the world on the women's side with their third major, 21 years old. And Alcaraz is going to be in that Federer Nadal Djokovic zone. He's probably going to get 20. I mean, I, I don't even say that uh, casually. He's probably going to get a ridiculous number of, of Grand Slam titles, barring any kind of calamity that uh, shortens his career. So they'll be you know uh, certainly Alcaraz will be a star but you know 
at this point, these are not familiar names at all. The matches, certainly the women's match was not very compelling. Uh, Jabor didn't really show up until the second set, uh, you know, and, and Casper Rude, I don't really think anyone expected. I mean, who even knows his name if you don't follow tennis? And I don't really right. think anyone expected him to win. So, you know, those matches did about as well as you could possibly expect. Uh, but the big hit, this was an American U.S. Open. Americans didn't make it to either final, but Americans were in every single window that did well. And there were quite a few windows that did well. Obviously, the ones with Serena, but the men's semifinal TFO versus Alcaraz, nearly three million viewers. That is an absurdly high number for a men's semifinal at the Open. The U.S. Open has been the Serena Williams Invitational. And so you have not seen for the men's matches really notable numbers. Uh, certainly uh, in recent years. And and uh, that TFO Al- Al- uh, Alcaraz match was a very strong draw. So you know there's a real appetite for basic competence from American men's tennis uh, that we have not seen in a long time. Uh, you know, Roddick is the last one to win, 2003. Mm. You know, uh, Hard to believe. Would that, have Alcaraz, even, would that have even, John, been fathomable back in the right. 80s, 90s? That you would go oh. 20 years without an American winning the oh. U.S. Open? I mean, that's amazing. Well, the only American to win the U.S. Open since Roddick, Serena, and Sloane Stevens, right? How about that? You know, a, a lot of people took Serena for granted, I'll tell you. And, uh, you know, she was carrying the flag for American tennis. Uh, no with, question. You know, with Venus and, and with uh, Sloane. And I know Cer- Certainly Cannon. for the last 10 years. Oh, yeah. There's no dispute was, and no argument on that. It was primarily Serena. And a lot of people were complaining about it the entire time. It's like, you realize that without Serena Williams, American tennis would be pretty much nothing right now. Uh, so uh, we'll see if TFO can can continue uh, to do it. Um, you know, but uh, American men's tennis, I mean, it's been all of these kind of mediocre players, uh, you know, uh, a whole bunch of uh, Atlanta Hawks, a whole bunch of, you know, uh, San Diego Padres, right? And I mean, frankly, that's not even accurate because these guys don't even at least like do anything. At least right. occasionally the Hawks will make a conference final. Certainly not. A- certainly not uh, in my contemporary days of uh, Connors and, and McEnroe right. or move it forward to Sampras and Courier and Agassi. And yeah, uh, yeah it's not what we... Uh... No disrespect to Jack Sock and, you know, Marty Fish and... <laughs> Man, just Isner and oh Listen my to you busting out all the different tennis names oh. uh, on that. You're loving you some tennis and the and the audience was there for some of this. It's just they got to get to the winner's circle. They got to get to the championship yeah, match and get to the winner's circle for it to be a difference. Uh, for the other thing too, I will note, men's tennis is very boring if you get out of Federer and Adal and Djokovic. There's a lot of serve bots. They just serve. And, you know, the ridiculous Isner-Mahout match, which was ridiculous right. you know uh, the famous not, Wimbledon 100 yeah. plus game final yeah. set that, that nobody wants to see that uh, so the men's game you know uh, the men's game can be very tedious uh, especially when you get those uh, but Alcaraz doesn't play that way neither did TFO very entertaining match he looked a lot like John Lewis with that one rally in the semifinals I think it was with the shot between the legs uh, the old the old school trick shot with with pace on it too by the way hitting a great shot. So there were some moments, obviously. Yeah. At Which John Lewis are you talking about? I'm talking about you. They don't know about <laughs> your athletic prowess. Uh, you no, that, I'm just saying they don't know about your athletic prowess. Let them yeah. speculate. Let them dream about yeah. it. Let's... I did get. I did once get hit in the head with a tennis racket as it was being swung backwards because I was in the way. Kind of like what happened <laughs> with Gary Sanchez. Yeah, <laughs> right. I've never been the same again since okay. then. 
the right. tennis the tennis faux pas there on that. Yeah. Let us move on. Love it or leave it. Next up here, WNBA. I want to squeeze that yeah. in. Their uh, women's uh, finals are underway. Yeah. Uh, Las Vegas was a rocking atmosphere for game one. Just give me yeah. a quick thought on the WNBA finals. Well, you know, anytime you're opening up on NFL week one, it's a ridiculous thing to do. But the ratings were actually much higher for game one than they were last year. Uh, so we're not talking about a great number here, but it's uh, 555,000 viewers for game one. Last year's game one was somewhere in the neighborhood of 450,000. Obviously, that's before you have the uh, the corrected out-of-home data. I would assume that any out-of-home correction would not be enough to move last year's audience all the way from 450,000 to 550,000. So I'm going with the idea, and ESPN will confirm it, I'm sure, later today, that it was a larger audience than last year. Given the matchup, right? Vegas and you know Connecticut are not actually big markets. Uh, Las Vegas is a relatively small market, despite the fact that it's you know world famous. And you know Hartford is is a is a small market as well. There's a reason the NHL is not there. So uh, it's not Seattle, Chicago, which is what the league wanted. The league wanted Sue Bird and Candace Parker, right? Understandably so. It's not that. Uh, Connecticut is a very low-profile team. They're a lot like the San Antonio Spurs, where you know John Quell Jones is a star, but he's not you know, a superstar. She's complained about this, uh, but she's just not a superstar the way that Candace and Sue and, and some of the other players are in the league, Asia Wilson, um, you know, Connecticut really they're, you know, they're kind of, they're just there. They're just there. They deserve uh, to be there, but they're the Spurs right. is a good analogy. Yeah. Or if you're, last- if you're talking about uh, in baseball terms, if the Milwaukee Brewers make the world series, right. exactly. it's just kind of the same thing. That it's not the same thing as a New York team or the biggest stars from uh, some of the markets, you know, uh, Chicago, L.A., whatever it is. And shout out again to my radio brother, T.C. Martin, initials brother from another mother. He is on the local Las Vegas Aces calls, losing his mind right now on the radio calls with his team having already won game one now. I just don't know if T.C. is going to get a championship ring. Maybe he will get a championship ring from the WNBA. Uh, if it keeps working. So we're, we're loving ourselves some of that interest. Anything else? On I did want to point out all the rest of the games are on ESPN, the flagship, not ESPN two. So there's a very strong possibility that the ratings will be up for this finals just because of that. So game one, and away us. from the football, it'll help. Right. Obviously, yeah, so. which is one of and your points. Yeah. The other thing too, last year, I believe, well, no, not, I believe, I know the baseball playoffs are going on. Uh, I think game two was able to avoid baseball competition because I think there might've been series that ended early and it had over 700,000 viewers last year. Uh, Obviously no baseball competition tonight in terms of national games. So I'd expect another audience in that similar range. Thursday might do okay going up against football because it's on Amazon. The football audience will probably be smaller than it was last year. And then, uh, you know, then next week, another Sunday game, this time on ESPN rather than ABC, because ABC has the PLL final. Uh, That won't do well because of that. But then if you get to a game five, back on ESPN, a Tuesday night, no competition. I keep saying a million viewers for the WNBA is possible. It's been 14 years. I mean, you can't go 14 years without a single audience in the million viewer range. I mean, that's ridiculous. So we'll see if they're able to get that for a potential game five. Right, another subject. 
Love it or leave it. I am big in the boxing world, so I'm loving me. Canelo Alvarez, Gennady Golovkin. This is a boxing pay-per-view Saturday night from Las Vegas. It is arguably the biggest remaining fight of 2022. Canelo, John Lewis, for those that don't intensely follow the sport, is the most popular fighter, non-heavyweight. And this is a trilogy fight. The first two fights were very close. The first one was a draw. That was five years ago. Four years ago, Alvarez won a split decision in the rematch. It's taken them forever for various reasons to get this fight made. Different promoters get the money straight. Uh, COVID-19 situation. They were supposed to have fought in 2020, and it didn't happen because of COVID-19. So anyway, they fight this weekend. I'm a boxing guy. Again, our brother website is bigfightweekend.com. We're writing all about it. we got a Big Fight Weekend preview podcast about Canelo and Triple G coming. Do you care in the least? I'm, I'm sharing that it's on. You know that I'm loving it. Do you care in the least? You're just leaving it on Canelo Triple G. I know it's $84.95, by the way, for the pay-per-view. A little expensive for Saturday night for the boxing pay-per-view. Love it or leave it for you? Uh, they'd have to pay me $84.95 to watch this game, uh, this uh, this fight. Look, I mean, for me, you know, boxing is a non-factor. Uh you know, boxing hasn't been relevant for me personally since Mike Tyson was right. still around. Uh, yeah, I remember, even though I wasn't watching those fights, you remember the electricity of those Saturday nights when Tyson was fighting. Uh, I don't even know who Canelo is. I, I wouldn't if Canelo could right. walk into this room I'm in in his boxing trunks and I still wouldn't know who he was. Uh, so, you know, I Wait a mean, minute. there's some strange man in boxing trunks. Oh, well, Canelo Alvarez. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, to me, I think the last boxing fight I watched was that one episode of Golden Girls where Sophia bought the boxer and uh, she and the rest <laughs> of the girls had to train him to fight. But he was also uh, trying to get into Juilliard because he wanted to uh, be a pianist. Oh. Right? And, I never uh, saw that episode of Golden Girls, but you always bring it back around to the 80s, the 90s, the comedies. I got to yeah. go find that now somewhere on Peacock or something there with uh, with that for the box. But you're right. It was much more mainstream. I mean, when I tell you things like when Muhammad Ali was fighting on ABC okay. in the late 70s and they got 90, 90, 90 million people to watch. Uh, it's incredible what the numbers used to be. And they, and they yes. obviously became a lot less once it went off network TV, went to pay-per-view. But that's the fight in Vegas on Saturday night. Let's see if it is worthwhile. I don't know that it's worth $84.95. The public will dictate that. But let's see if the fight is worthwhile or not. We have one more before we're gone. Love it or leave it. So I was in and around AT&T Stadium, as I've mentioned already in the podcast, for the Buccaneers-Cowboys game on Sunday night. Upcoming is the Texas State Fair. I think you might know where I'm headed with this. Oklahoma and Texas will play there in their traditional rivalry game that will now, as you pointed out, become an SEC game, no longer a Big 12 game will now become an SEC game in coming years. So at the Texas State Fair, and they had some pictures up in and around our hotel and at AT&T Stadium of, of different things with the Texas State Fair, they have the corny dogs. The corny dog or the corn dog is the famous, you know, uh, batter golden brown on the hot dog. Yeah. Love it or leave it, John Lewis, are you a corn dog or corny dog guy? Confess on the podcast. Thumbs up, thumbs down. I haven't had one of those since uh, grade school in the cafeteria, you know, uh, <laughs> and uh, they certainly weren't very good back then. Uh, all, I mean, honestly, I remember you'd peel the, yep. the stale cornbread off of the sausage right. and uh, no, right. I don't eat that. You don't want to I mean, I haven't had that. a good I haven't had a good corn dog ever in the my life. The corny dogs, though, are legendary at the Texas State Fair in Dallas. They sometimes have cheese filling. They have other things. I, I'm good with just a little bit of mustard. 
Uh, and Big Tex, Big Tex is the huge, gigantic Texan with the hat and the belt buckle that greets yeah. you at the state fair. The big life beyond life size, like gargantuan Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. There's Ghostbusters, yeah. 1980s. Yeah. Uh, big Tex is there waving as you come in, and then you go get a corny dog. Yeah. And maybe you ride the Ferris wheel, and that's it at the Texas State Fair. I'll go see some cattle. Uh, I, know I know that thing burned down the other day, didn't it? It did, it did one year. It did burn down, and I think they've had to replace Big Tex. But they've got the corny dogs there. I've, I've been there on an occasion for Texas OU. So that's coming in a couple of weeks. But since I was in Dallas, I just had to find out about your affinity or not for corn dogs or corny dogs. Yeah. And, it, and I understand for most it was when you were younger or a little kid you had them. It's not like you're breaking that out very often, but I just thought I would. I would ask. It is the very far better. Oh, well, the far better school meal. We went to a Renaissance fair once and they gave me the big giant uh, thing of uh, the big the, giant the turkey, turkey leg. leg, the turkey yeah. leg or the ham bone. I love it yeah. with the with. The, yes, that is better for the school meal. Certainly better than like the tater tots and the slimy yeah. pizza. They, the they feed children horribly. They do. I don't know if they still do, but they sure did when I was coming up. I've got I, I will tell you, hey, can I give a shout? I will tell you that the Obama administration and Michelle Obama went really set out to try to have better school food. And when my two were coming through early elementary and elementary school, I'm looking around at some of the stuff they were having in terms of vegetables and the chicken and that kind of thing. And I'm going, that is not the slimy like you reference corn dog or pizza yeah. or whatever. The breakfast pizza. The breakfast pizza. Yeah. yeah. So it has gotten a little better. I thought I would share at the end of the podcast we've had a gonna, busy show we've had a busy show have we not we've covered a bunch haven't we we have i was just gonna sneak in i've got a lot of school stories and one of these days i'll tell you about the time when we all got pepper sprayed on the school bus by, by another student or by the bus driver this this girl and i it's it's obviously got to be a sad story for a kid to be walking around with pepper spray but she had pepper spray in you know, with her and it went off we're all coughing in the back and the bus driver's obviously thinking we're playing a prank and eventually she was like, wait a second, you know, now I guess I'm starting to cough too. So yeah, this girl, she brought pepper spray on the we bus. We did not have a bus accident. It was okay. And everybody I, we, was- I, I, well, I was in a bus accident once. I, I, uh, the bus, the school bus crashed. There's a separate incident. You yeah. have much more to detail on the Sports Media yeah. Watch uh, podcast here about bus incidents when you were younger. Now, yeah. now I'm beginning to understand how it has shaped you for the sports media mogul that you now are and writing about it and talking well, about it here on the podcast. We live directly across the street from the hospital. So I saw the reporter <laughs> from Fox 5 doing his stand up directly across the street. So I went up and uh, I went up to him and got his uh, got his card and said, hey, you know, I was in this bus accident today. Just letting you know. <laughs> you were proactively part of the story. Yeah, exactly. All right. It has been an interesting, as I said, uh, podcast. We've covered all things from football to the professional lacrosse league. Again, thanks to Michael Doniger being with us uh, as uh, Fate of a League is the name of that documentary out on ESPN and ABC later this week. ESPN Plus will have it as well on demand, I'm sure. Uh, all the different takes from everything from the U.S. Open to corn dogs and everything in between. John, are we good for another week, sir? Yeah, I think so. Always love being with you. We thank everybody for finding us on the Sports Media Watch uh, podcast feed. Make sure you're following or subscribing for all the great content here. Make sure you're reading John's site for all the info, the ratings, etc. SportsMediaWatch.com. I am merely TJ Reeves for John Lewis. Thank you so much for being with us here on the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.